And all right, I'm really glad to be here again. Good morning. I didn't say good morning yet. Good morning. Okay. All right. Uh, one more announcement. If you're college age and you want to be part of a life group tonight, we are going to start um, a group uh, at our home for college age students, or if you're not in student but you're that age and you want to join us, we would welcome you to come. It'll be six o'clock at our house. If you need an address um, on the coffee table, there's a little card with our home address there, and you can pick that up on your way out. So we look forward to seeing you guys tonight. Um, we also commemorated 9-11 this week. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you to all those in our congregation who are first responders, law enforcement, or military in our midst. And we, we appreciate your, your work for our community and for us. Um, let's, let's bow in a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll move forward. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your goodness in our lives. We thank you that we can meet and gather here together as a church body. We pray for those that are not with us this morning, those that may be sick or may be ill, um, like the family of the, the Hermanson family. We pray that you would just <clears throat> encourage those people, that you would heal those people, that you would um, be very near to them today. I pray that they would, they would know your presence. I pray that as we delve into your word, that, God, you would teach us what we need to hear, that we would be sensitive to hear what your spirit has to say, and that as we go from here, we would, we would go away different than when we came. I thank you that we've been able to praise you in song. I thank you that we have uh, means by which we can grow in love and, and encouragement with one another through groups throughout the week. And as we open your word today, I pray that you'll just speak to us and we give you the praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, if you're joining us this week or haven't been around for a while, just a quick recap. We've been studying the book of Ephesians, and last week we finally finished chapter one. So that was six weeks in one chapter. Um, we, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move ahead a little bit faster than that. But we saw how Jesus enacted a new covenant with us, a covenant totally dependent upon him and not on us. And to receive the benefits of this covenant, we simply must believe. And then we looked at the spiritual blessings of that covenant, adoption and ransom and forgiveness and the sealing by the Holy Spirit. And we talked briefly about Jesus' new command to love one another. And the past few weeks, we've been looking at Paul's prayer for the church. And the big idea of this letter, if we could sum it all up, is unity based on love and rooted in the truths of who we are in Christ. Okay, so unity based on love, rooted in the truths of who we are in Jesus Christ. So if you missed some of the message, you can go online. They're, uh, they're on our website, uh, on our YouTube channel. But, and that's a recap of where we're at. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 today. So if you can, why don't you grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And if you can stand, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he had, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches 
of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. You may be seated. So in this part of the letter, Paul is demonstrating how the theology and the blessings that we've been reading about in the beginning of the, of the letter impact everyday life. He'll tell us what we were. We'll read in this passage and in the few coming up. He'll tell us what we were. He'll give us our new reality in Christ. He's going to inform us on what God is creating. And then he's going to talk about the implications. And you can see it in the, in the verses that we have right here. So in verse Uh, He begins by saying, and you were, in verse 1. In verse 4, he says, but God. In verse 7, so that. And in verse 10, for we. So he's going to do the same pattern, verses 11 through 18. We're going to look at that next week. And in chapter 3, he does the same pattern. So Paul explains what they were, what they now are, what God is doing in the midst of that, and then what are the implications? What's the application from it? And the, the application is knowledge without application is useless, right? If we don't use it. What would you think if your child went to school to become an astronaut? I don't know if any of you want to be an astronaut, but if, if your child went to school to become an astronaut, spent years in the classroom, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the best education, and knew everything that there was to know about being an astronaut, but then did nothing with it. Instead, he decided to go sit on a beach for the rest of his life. Uh, You'd be kind of upset, and rightfully so, right? All of this knowledge, all of this at his disposal, and he doesn't use it. Knowledge without application is useless, and it's frustrating. So just to warn you, if you've been enjoying all these amazing truths and the in-depth Bible study and the profound blessings that God has given us, it's great, but it can't stop there. It can't stop there. All this truth and all these blessings are meant to be lived out. If they're not being lived out, then Houston, we got a problem. All right? To go on that analogy. So Paul is praying for the theology and the blessings to become a rally in the lives of his readers. And that's my prayer for us here at KMCC, that this great knowledge and the incredible truths that we've been learning, the depth of grace and love of Jesus that we have been hearing about week after week, would do more than just sit in our heads, but that it would impact how we think and and ultimately how we act and how we live. And that we would love Jesus and walk in love towards one another and towards those outside our fellowship. So the section we read today is still part of Paul's prayer. His prayer is for them to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Last week we looked at the power and how that power was to be in, impacting our lives. Today we're looking at the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, which we talked a few weeks ago is us. Remember? His riches of his inheritance is us. He considers us his rich inheritance. As we looked at what we were and what he has made us to be and the implication today, it should motivate us because we are his glorious inheritance. That's an incredible truth. Knowing that we are the object of God's affection should change how we do life. Should change how we do life. So Paul begins with where we were in Christ. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our three enemies had locked us in chains of sin and death. We were doomed to die, all of us, every one of us. And those three enemies of our soul are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Paul lists each of one of those here in our passage. In verse 2, we were following the course of this world. Well, what is the course of this world, you might ask? What is the path that the world follows? There's two main ways that I think the world, that the world follows. One is power. Everybody wants power. We try to control, as we talked about last week. We, we talked about how we try to control the weather, the population, the stock market, our age, our health, our wealth, other people, the government, the internet, our kids, our family, our coworkers. We try to control everything. We also try to reign. We try to be our own little gods and goddesses of our own little universes. We want everything to go according to our plan. So we scheme and we connive our way through life. And we want people to bend to our will. We manipulate and use people for our benefit. We try to make everything fair. We get even, we steal, we retaliate, we get revenge. This is the course of this world. So power and then independence. We don't need anybody. We isolate, we hate, we gossip, we do it on our own. We're self-made men and women. We don't need God. We refuse the crutch, as the world calls it. We think we are so strong. We think we're so wise. We think we're so brilliant. This is the course of this world. And it's difficult to get out of this frame of mind because it's everywhere. In the advertisements, right? You'll be the celebrity, right? The author of your own destiny. If you ride in this car, if you wear this suit, if you live in this house, if you sleep on this bed, if you spritz this perfume, you will be everything to everybody. The self-help practices, it's all about you, right? Have a positive self-esteem and a positive outlook and the world is yours. You can do anything you want to do. Business practices, to make it, you have to follow the system or you'll be trodden down and abused. This is the way of the world. It's the course of the world, and it's tough. It's meant to destroy you, to beat you down, and to kill you. And it's because the world is following the prince of the power of the air. Prince of the power of the air in verse 2. The world system is founded upon the principles and the lies of the devil. The devil desires nothing more than to destroy us. He is real, and his chief aim is to get us down and to kill us. His chief tactic is a spirit of pride resulting in disobedience. He wants nothing more than for you and I to be so full of ourselves that the only voices we listen to are our own and his. And then like Adam and Eve and like Cain and like the kings of Israel, we mess it all up. And there's also another thing that's against us, as if that isn't bleak enough, it's we follow the, our own passions, the passions of our flesh in verse 3. And those passions are desires. It's talk, it talks about the desires of the body. It's a lusting. It's a craving. 
We follow our natural body instincts and our cravings. We don't think, we just act, and sometimes we act like animals. We hoard stuff. We constantly buy and purchase, hoping that the next thing will fill the void in our spirits, in our souls. So we accumulate stuff, we crave it, we lust after it. And in the end, it's nothing more than a pile of trash. It's empty, and it's temporary, it's addicting, and it ends in our destruction. Some of us left after sex. It's not an act of love, it's an act of lust. To satisfy a craving, a human instinct, it's empty and temporary and addicting and ends in our destruction. Or we desire chemicals. They help us escape. Drugs give us enjoyment. Alcohol helps us forget. Pills take away the pain. It is all empty and temporary and addicting and ends in our destruction. And then there's the desires of the mind and the will. We desire knowledge. We go to school forever. We search the internet all night long. We read so long that we ruin relationships. In the end, it's empty knowledge. It makes us insecure. It's addicting, and it ends in our destruction. We desire the dopamine rush, so we get on our device and we post things that will grab attention. We like and we comment. We check our likes and we check our comments. We try to stay current and up to date, all the while we're ignoring people right across the table from us. It's empty, it's addicting, and it ends in our destruction. We desire peace of mind and enlightenment, so we empty our minds and open it up to the devil and to our own sinful thoughts. This too is empty and addicting and ends in our destruction. We desire praise, we desire to be right. So we tear others down through gossip and slander and betrayal. We want to make ourselves look good so others will acknowledge that we are right. This is empty and hollow praise, and it ends in our destruction and in the destruction of others. And at the end of verse 3, all these things are self-centered and prideful, and they all end in our destruction or the destruction of someone else. In our own strength, there is no way of escape. We are powerless to change our predicament. We are in chains to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we can't get out. We are blind to the course of this world, and we're ignorant of the prince of the power of the air. We enjoy the passions of the flesh. In truth, we're not even looking for God, and we are children of wrath, and we deserve punishment. God's wrath is justly upon us. We had neglected him in his way of full and eternal life, life that is addiction-free and resulting in our flourishing and our fruitfulness, and we reject that. Consequently, his wrath is justified. And that is what we were. That is what we were. That's the mess that we were in. If you are in Christ, that life is no longer yours. That is no longer yours. If you are still in that life, there is a Savior, and his name is Jesus. And he's ready to accept you in. You just have to believe in him. Because verse 4 says, but God. But God. I love that little phrase. But God being rich in mercy. God is rich in compassion and mercy. Remember when we talked a few weeks ago about how people view God? They consider him to be a brooding and vindictive and judgmental and angry and harsh and demanding God. He's a God of justice. It says this right here in verse 3. We are children of wrath. And there's a reason for that. But God is also a God of mercy and justice, and grace. And there's that other side of him that sometimes we don't recognize. 
Mercy is seeing someone in misery because of their sin and wanting to help them. God was concerned for us and the misery that our sinful state put us in. The hopelessness, the fact we were doomed to die, the fact we deserved to die, the fact we were children of wrath, the fact that we were addicted to and being destroyed by all the things that we talked about a few minutes ago. God is concerned for us. God was rich in mercy and doesn't want us to suffer our fate. He is full of compassion. It is God's mercy that compels him to withhold the consequences that we deserve. Out of his mercy, a compassionate desire to see men free from the burden, curse, and consequence of sin that God extends his grace, resulting in the forgiveness of our sins. Mercy deals with the consequences of our sins and concerned with the consequences of our sins. Grace deals with the sin itself. In verse seven, we see that God is also rich in grace as well. Grace is the unmerited, unearned favor of God, a gift of his favor resulting in forgiveness and life that we don't deserve. Grace is God giving us what we need and what we don't deserve. Now, many of you are parents. Now, if you're not parents, you're children. I know, really good deduction there, right? So, as such, you will relate to this example no matter how old you are. As children, we've all messed up, done something in complete disobedience to what our parents said, right? Well, maybe I'm the only one in this room that's that way, but if you can't remember back that far, then we know of a time when our children disobeyed us, right? In a direct, a direct order. We've given them ample warning as to what the consequences are. Billy, if you go out into the road one more time, you'll be grounded in your room for a week. Sure enough, Billy goes out in the street. He has a great excuse. He was chasing the ball down, and yet... He said, okay, Billy, come here. You disobeyed a direct order. You're grounded to your room for seven days. Go. Billy knows he's wrong, heads up to his room, sits down on his bed, and he's there for days. You feed him bread and water. That's it. <laughs> Day four rolls around. It's the weekend. It's 80 degrees and sunny. His friends are playing in the park. You see him sitting on his bed, and you're, the pit in your stomach moves, right? That's called Compassion. When your stomach churns, it's called compassion. You have compassion on him sitting there all alone on this beautiful day. You hate the fact that he must go through these consequences and you want to do something about it. You're the only one who can do anything about it because you are the one who made the rule and the corresponding consequences. So you go to his room and you say, Billy, because I feel so bad for you having to sit inside on this beautiful day and because I love you so very much and because I've forgiven you, and I have the right to remove the consequences for your disobedience, I'm going to do that right now. You may go outside and play. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that has a soft heart like that, but I've done that many times. Go outside and play, right? You are free to go hang out with your friends. We disobeyed God. We just looked at that. We deserved what we got. But even when we were dead in our sins, sitting around in our bedroom, God was rich in his mercy and had great love for us and gave us an incredible gift from his incredible wealth of grace. And that gift is that, our second point today, we are alive in Christ. <clears throat> Verse four through seven. Verse four through seven, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He made us alive in Christ. He resurrected us. 
we were dead in our sins. We sinned and we got the consequences of that sin. Like Billy, we were lying dead in our bed. No life, we couldn't do anything, we couldn't go anywhere. We are now made alive. He gave us life just as Jesus' heart began to beat again in the grave and the breath of God filled his lungs and he began to breathe, so God has made us alive in Christ. Just as Billy was allowed to go outside and play with his friends, we are given new life and new freedom because of the grace of God. And he raised us up with Christ. And this is an incredible truth. Think back to last week when we looked at Ephesians chapter 1. God's power raised up Christ from the dead, remember? God raised him up from the dead never to die again. He's the first immortal. God put all things under his feet, and that includes death. Jesus trampled death and left it destroyed in its grave. Death has no power over him or anyone who was raised with him. We too were raised with Jesus, and now we do not have to fear death. Death does not have dominion over us either. Philippians 2, it says that God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. We are raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. In 120, we learn that Jesus is seated at God's right hand, right? At God's right hand, the place of authority and power, the place of access and relationship to God Almighty. Now, Paul is saying that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. This means that we are sitting right next to Jesus with full access to the Father at any time. And we're not standing, as in working, to earn our salvation or earn our favor with God. No, we are seated with Jesus in heavenly places, resting in what God has done to put us in that position of power. That's pretty powerful stuff. And it results in this. So we were children of wrath, and now we are children of God. In verse one, chapter 1, verse 5, and 2, verse 19, we talked about adoption, and we're made children. So contrasted with being children of wrath, we're now children of God. We are members of the household of God. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Because we are seated with Jesus in the position of power and authority, we now have the power to refuse. Get this, we have the power to refuse to follow the course of this world. Jesus gives us power and authority to refuse the power-hungry, hyper-independent society that we live in. We don't have to give in to that. We are seated next to Jesus and given power to refuse the ways of this world. We also have the power to resist the devil. We do not have to follow his schemes, his plans, or his temptations. We, through Jesus' power and authority, can say no, and he will flee from us. We are seated next to Jesus and given the power to resist temptation of the devil. And then we're also given the power to refrain from sin. Jesus gives us power and strength to refrain from the evil and sinful acts which come to us instinctually. We don't even think about it, we just do, but Jesus gives us power over that. Sinning was a habit. Sinning was enjoyable. Sinning was addicting. The power to overcome sin and addiction comes only through Jesus and his power. We are seated next to Jesus and given power to refrain from sin. If you're caught in a cycle of sin or following the ways of this world, the power of Jesus is available to you right now because you are seated in that position of power with Christ. Just ask him to help, and he will. So we looked at what we were, 
We looked at what we are, and now we're going to look at what God is doing. Our third point is that he, he's doing two things, that he could unite us to him, verse 6. God wanted to be united, us to be united with him. That is what God intended when he created mankind. He wanted to share the life he had with something that he created. He desired to spend eternity with you. Imagine that. God wants to spend eternity with you and with me. And that was, a motiv- that was the motivation for all that he did for us. So God didn't send his son for God's own sake. He sent it for us. He sent him for us. He did it so we would be reunited with him. We are the riches of his inheritance. It was worth it all for him to come for us. So maybe you're feeling lonely. Maybe you're feeling dirty. Maybe you're feeling forgotten, dead, hopeless, wondering what this life is all about, wondering if you were created to be a sinner, wondering if you were created to be a criminal, wondering if you you were wondering if this is all worth it, wondering if there's any purpose to even being born. This is for you. God loved you, and he died for you. If you have believed in Jesus as your Savior, no matter how difficult life gets, know this. He loves you with great, immeasurable love. He raised you up and seated you in heavenly places. He gave you life. You have power because you're with Christ in heavenly places right now. He showers you with kindness and undeserved favor. Also, he could enjoy a relationship with you. You are the riches of his inheritance. And he initiated this whole thing. It says in here, it says that while we were dead in our sins, he initiated the whole thing. You were not even thinking about him, but he was thinking about you and planning this incredible scene of events for you. God loves his children. We've got to understand this. It don't get any better than this. God Almighty loves you. And then he wanted to show his immeasurable wealth of grace. We see this phrase repeated over and over again. Remember, it's about you. But as we said a few weeks ago, it's more than just about you. It's for him to show off how great he is. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 8, and chapter 3, verse 16, we see this, this idea of God showing off his immeasurable wealth of grace according to his immeasurable wealth of grace. In verse 7, it says it's an act of kindness that God does this. God is a kind God, and in his kindness, he desires to give us a gift from his immeasurable wealth of grace. It's an honor for him to do this. It's part of his nature. God is not showing off. He is displaying his honor and demonstrating to us his kindness. He is using his incredible wealth of grace on us to show us that he values us that much. What incredible kindness. And then we get to verses 8 and 9. It's a gift of grace. By grace you've been saved. Grace is undeserved kindness. Think about it. You and I didn't deserve this grace. No matter how good I may think I am, no matter how much I follow the rules, no matter how perfectly I've been or how much I've sacrificed through the years or how strictly I follow the Ten Commandments 
or how religious I am. No, none of it makes me deserving of God's grace. No one in this room deserves God's grace. Therefore, none of us is any better or any more important than anyone else. And this is crucial to understand. It's through faith. It's not through a prayer, not through a good work, not because I go to church, not by being religious, not by giving generously, not by my intellectually understanding the gospel story. It's only by faith in the gospel story that we obtain God's free gift. It's not our own doing. We did not save ourselves. We did not somehow get out from underneath Satan's rule. We did not crawl our way out of sin's trap. We did not make ourselves good or lovely. We are not super wise. We did not coerce God into giving us this gift. We did not do anything to deserve this gift. It's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God. A gift is not earned. A gift is received. A gift is not paid for by the recipient. The gift is paid for by the one who's giving it. God paid for us to have his grace. He paid the ultimate price, too. We do not have to do anything to pay for or earn God's gift of grace. The gift costs God everything. It costs us nothing. It's not of works. You catch a theme here in Paul's letter, right? Paul keeps repeating this over and over again. It's not through our efforts that we receive God's grace. It's not through what you did. We do nothing to deserve God's free gift. So why did he do this? So that no one can boast. Can you imagine what it would be like if we came in here every Sunday? If any of us had earned God's gift of grace, what this place would be like? It would be a revolting dictation of fish stories. It would be like this, all focused on, the, on us. I did this and God saved me, right? I gave this away and God saved me. The stories would get more and more exaggerated and more and more about us and less and less about God. So God took away all bragging rights. None of us can boast that we are any better than anyone else. None of us got into the family because we deserved it. None of us got into the family through our intellectual prowess. None of us got into the family by our dashing good looks. None of us got into the family because we did so many good things or lived a clean life or helped the old lady across the street. None of us can boast. And it's humbling to receive such a lavish gift. So we saw where we were in a dire state. We see where God has put us, an incredible state of power and love and kindness that he has put us in, and what God is doing. He's trying to manifest his grace and give us a free gift. Now what are the implications? Our final point, for we. And this is where we connect all the stuff that we're hearing with our actions. In verse 10, it says this, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. <clears throat> we are his workmanship. We are the work of his hands. He fabricated us. He designed and knit us together. When you take raw lumber and you build a beautiful table, that is your workmanship. When you take spools of yarn and you make a beautiful tapestry, that's your workmanship. When you take all the ingredients and you put it together and you make a wonderful cake, 
That's your workmanship. When you take tons of old parts and shine them up and paint them up and oil them up and restore a collector's vehicle, that's your workmanship. When you take bricks and mortar and lay them on top of one another, that's your workmanship. In all those examples, we take many pieces and bring them together as one. This is the work of our hands. This is our workmanship. God has brought all of us together in his church. We are his workmanship. Together, he formed us into what he desires. And together, as his workmanship, he created us for a purpose. All those things that I talked about are made for a purpose. Our workmanship is not just for itself, it's for a purpose, right? Same with God. He created us for a purpose. Just as we built a table or a tapestry or restore a car or build a wall, God created us as his church for a purpose. And here it is. He created us for good works. He created us for good works. And I know some, in some circles of Christianity, when you mention this word work, people get a twitch. They get kind of like this. They can't sit still, right? They get uncomfortable, and I understand. Works are not a means of gaining salvation or merit from God. We just saw that. We saw how huge of a point Paul made of that. It is not of us. We did nothing to deserve it, right? It's not of works. So we find ourselves here after all of that, all those nine verses, and we look at verse 10, and we can't deny that verse 10 is there. And yet how can the gift be free if we have to do something in, after we receive it, right? How do those two things jive? In our Western mindset, oftentimes a free gift means that there's no obligation on behalf of the one receiving it, right, the recipient. However, in the Mediterranean honor-shame community-based culture, a free gift means that it's free in the giving. Free in the giving. But at, in the receiving, there's an understood obligation or an understood response of being in a relationship with the giver. The free gift opens the door to relationship. In that culture, I would never think of receiving a gift and then never having contact with the person that gave it to me. That's unheard of. You don't do that. The gift was to open the door to a relationship. In writing this letter to Ephesians, Paul assumes the culture, and so when he introduces this idea of being created for good works, to him and them, it's only a natural response to a free gift. So our good works are a response to a free gift of grace and salvation that we receive from Jesus. When I make a table, I already have determined what that table is going to do. There's no question in my mind why I made the table. I designed it to bring a certain amount of people together in close proximity. I designed it so people would eat food on it and enjoy conversation. That's the purpose. The table's proper response is to do what I designed it to do. When God made the church, he already determined what the work of the church was going to do. He has the right, as our creator, to do so. And there's no question in his mind as to what we were created for. Good works. He gave us a free gift, and the only proper response is to follow through with what was intended in the giving of the gift. Good works reveal our relationship with God. Good works honor God and the free gift of grace that he has given to us. We bestow honor on God as a respond in good works, such as loving one another. Remember Jesus talked about that? We talked about the first week we did this. Loving one another. 
being spiritual leaders for our families, caring for one another, spreading the good news of the truth of the gospel, caring for those less fortunate. Which brings us to the application. How are we doing with this as a church? Are we loving one another in tangible ways? Love is not a feeling, love is a choice. Our, our society gets this all mixed up. It's a choice to do good to someone in their best interests, regardless of how it affects me. Love begins with humility and understanding of who I really am, a sinner saved by grace. And so I love you because you're a sinner saved by grace. Are we spiritual leaders for our families? Are we prayerfully and purposely guiding them into a deeper walk with Jesus? Are we taking time to address their issues, to comfort their sorrows, to correct their errors, to answer their questions, to unconditionally love them? Are we caring for one another? Do we take time to listen to each other, to hear one another's burdens and pray for one another? When we hear of a need or a struggle, do we offer to help? When we hear of a false rumor, do we stop gossip and search for the truth? Do we walk across the church to talk to someone we may not know? Are we spreading the good news of the truth of the gospel? The stuff that we've heard about these past few weeks and the incredible truth that we learned about today is not to be kept to ourselves. God created and prepared us as his ambassadors to share the life-giving message with everyone we come in contact with. Are we caring for the less fortunate, the poor, the needy, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, the prisoner? These are all polarizing communities in our culture right now. I mentioned immigrants or felons or orphans and some of our heart rates go up. However, these are the very people that are high priority on God's heart. Consider this passage from Deuteronomy 10. The Lord your God is a God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who's not partial and is not going to take bribes and he's setting you up, right? He's the almighty God, the God of gods, right? You think he's going to talk about I'm the ruler of rulers, I'm the prince of princes, I'm the chief of all chiefs. He doesn't say that. He says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. The Almighty God cares for the less fortunate. They're dear to his heart. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He was known as a friend of sinners. He ate and associated with those the world refused to acknowledge. So as his workmanship then, as we do what we were created to do, are we following as Jesus did? Because when we do, we reflect back to him and to a watching world that God is a good God. He's just, and he's almighty, and he has a wrathful side, but he's a good God overall. We demonstrate the results of his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness to us. We have the privilege and honor and responsibility to demonstrate to the world who God is and really what he's like. So let's not take this lightly. Take time this week to reflect upon our responsibility as a church to function as God's workmanship, as he designed us to function for his honor and for his glory and for the sake of people that aren't even here yet in our midst. 
We were dead in our sins. Now we are alive in Christ and seated in heavenly places. So God can demonstrate his kindness and so we can work according to his purposes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are such an awesome, amazing, high and lifted up, glorious God. You didn't have to reach down. You didn't have to stoop down for us, and yet you did. In your grace, in your kindness, in your love, in your mercy that felt for the predicament we were in, you came down and you made a way that we could be reunited with you. We could have fullness of life and fullness of joy in your presence. We say thank you. Help us to live as your workmanship. Help us to, not out of trying to earn it, but out of gratitude and gratefulness for who you are, help us to live as you would have us to live and walk as you would have us to walk. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.